Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Welcome to In the Bookshop, a podcast usually recorded in George Street Community Bookshop in Glossop, the gateway to the beautiful Peak District. I say usually recorded in the shop because we are, of course, continuing to stay extremely alert and recording via the wonder of the World Wide Web. My name is Steve Roberts, and I'm the manager of George Street Community Bookshop. Each episode, myself and producer Simon Galloway are joined by a guest who tells us about five or six books they love and why they love them. Joining us in the bookshop for this episode is David Hepworth. David has been writing, broadcasting, and speaking about music and media since the 1970s. He was involved in the launch and editing of magazines such as Smash Hits, Q, Mojo, and my personal favourite magazine ever, The Word, among many others. As a broadcaster, he was one of the presenters of the Old Grey Whistle Test in the 1980s, and also one of the anchors of the BBC's coverage of Live Aid in 1985. These days, he's the author of a string of best-selling music books, the latest of which is called Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There. He's also a prolific podcaster, co-hosting the Word in Your Ear podcast and YouTube spin-off Word in Your Attic with his former Smash Hits colleague, Mark Allen. David, welcome. Nice to be with you, Steve. Great to have you here. So, you're going to tell us all about the books, well, some of the books that you love and why you love them, but you have a new book out yourself. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, the new one's called Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There, and obviously everybody's too young to know the derivation of that, but I'll I'll <laughs> fill in for their, for their benefit. Um, that was an expression coined in, in Britain during the Second World War to refer to the influx of American GIs who were stationed in the country prior to the, to the invasion of Europe. And uh, it seemed uh, appropriate to take that idea and sort of turn it on its head to describe the, uh, the benign uh, return invasion uh, that took place in America uh, of British acts going into America, starting with the Beatles, yeah. most memorably in 1964, the Ed Sullivan Show and so forth, and going pretty much up to you know the early 80s when there was a second British invasion, which they talk about, you know, which is Culture Club and Eurythmics and so forth. Uh, but the interesting thing is that, you know, I will say that these books are, uh, you know, most books of music history, like most books of Second World War history, that they're written by people who weren't there, increasingly <laughs> the case. Uh, and but I, I sort of remember the the Beatles going to uh, to to America and and how just unprecedented it was the idea that a British pop group would ever be embraced at all by the United States. And it was it was a very significant thing. And I think we still live with its reverberations many years later. You know, there's still the kind of giants of rock and roll. In America and Britain, there's still kind of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the yeah. Who and so forth, you know, and and they they were very much part of that um, that movement. And so, well, what I wanted to write about was just the effect all those acts had in the United States, and also had the effect that them being in the United States and, and embraced by people in the United States had on them and had on Britain, because there was a kind of I can remember it was a real surge of kind of, you know, patriotism, if you like, you know, because we just couldn't believe that that uh, 
that this thing that was fashioned in the UK was suddenly so people in America found it so enthralling because it had never happened before. Um, so that's why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, the reverberations in Liverpool are still, of course, well, to this day. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, so many Americans, you know, visit Liverpool and, and the city council woke up eventually to like, oh, oh, the Beatles did something in America, didn't they? Oh, yes. You know, so. Certainly did. Well, yeah. at least probably, you know, Liverpool is probably more famous for the Beatles nowadays yes. than anything still. After all those years, you know, it's more famous for, for that than, than even football, probably mm. worldwide. Um, so, yeah, and that could definitely be dated back to February 1964 when they first went over there. Wonderful. I know Simon said that you were going to be coming to Glossop, weren't you? This uh, yeah, I was. Well, I've been before, been, yes. been once in the past. Yeah, and I was looking forward to coming, I think, probably this week. I had all these things. Plotted in my diary for, you know, around about the launch of the magazine, uh, launch of the uh, the book and so forth. I was supposed to be in Halifax this week, I think, as well. And uh, and he got to the point, no, nobody bothered cancelling them. It was, <laughs> it was just everybody you see him. Well, obviously, all that yeah. stuff in your diary. Well, that's just fiction now, you know. Yeah. Nobody takes any notice of that. I keep waiting for somebody to ring up and go, where are you? <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, can I just ask, uh, in terms of your own writing, and obviously you had uh, a, a long career um, in the magazine industry, how does that c compare when you shift to, to writing books? How, how does that compare, you know, writing and editing for magazines and then taking that in, into the long form uh, of books? Oh, well, it's a big subject, that is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you when you write for a magazine, you, you, you know, you're writing, you know, 3,000 words is a, is a long thing. Uh, and so you, 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 you expect feedback straight away, you know, from editors, colleagues, and so forth. You're involved in the layout of it, and then you... You see it go out into the world two weeks later or something like that, and you you get you get feedback. Whereas writing a book is a kind of solitary, you know, thing. Um, and you know, PG Woodhouse is the only only worthwhile piece of advice for a writer, which is first apply the seat of the trousers to the surface of the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, no better piece of advice. <laughs> You know, could be given, you know, because what what are writers doing? They're doing everything in the world to avoid writing, like I'm doing right now. <laughs> and um, you know, it's a very it's a very different thing. But um, publishers quite like you, well, they're like me as a magazine writer, because you have views about things that a lot of writers don't have views about, which is you have views about the package. You have views about how it looks from the outside. You have views about titles, all that kind of stuff. Because the magazine business was a packaging business. And and so, you know, I have I have views about the packaging side of books, which probably a lot of writers don't have. But uh, I remember when I wrote the first one, 1971, I, I handed it to my agent and he read it and he said, well, that's great. You can do this. Because I think what he meant was he'd seen loads of magazine writers, really good magazine writers who couldn't couldn't sustain something over 100,000 know, 100, words. 
because you've got to you've got to you've got to retain a point of view all the way through it. And so, you know, I put a lot of work in there. People say, how long does it take to write as if as if the writing is the sitting down and typing? Most of my time writing is spent walking around the block trying to make yeah. it make sense in my head before I go back to to actually writing, you know. So you know, a huge amount of the time on my on my books is spent scoping the idea, really. You know, so at the moment I've got three potential ideas for another book and I still haven't worked out what to do. I'm going to have to go for lots of very long walks because my brain only works when I move about, um, which I flatter myself gives me kinship with Dickens, who did the same thing. <laughs> Dickens, Dickens used to compose in his head, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Pounding the streets of London or walking on the bloody way to Chatham, <laughs> you know, and uh, and make it all up and then go home and write it down. Um, so yeah, that that's the stage. That's the stage I'm at. I take longer than I probably ought to. People say, "God, you've got another book coming out," but you know, I I could probably do them quicker. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't necessarily make them any better. It's like the Beatles' first album. Well, you know, I believe in pop music. There's very little in pop music that can't be spoiled by taking more time over it. <laughs> yes, is <laughs> generally the thing that goes wrong. And am I right in thinking that you have actually um, voiced the audiobooks for all your books oh, as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, 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 so, yeah. there's something about the, the, the way that, that you, you write that just kind of it, it <laughs> leaps off the page and it's it's almost, it, it is a voice and it's almost like it's it's written to be read out loud. And it, it, well, is that's that, very is kind that... of you to say so. Very, first time I did it, first time I, I read my first one, you know, you go and read an audiobook and there's no great mystery about how you do an audiobook which is it takes the time it takes. You know, you, technology can't make it any quicker. It takes three and a half days to read a 100,000-word book. Um, and by the end of by the, the end of, into the fourth day, you're starting to lose your voice. Um, and with the first one, I used to get the occasional sentence where you just couldn't read. You know, <laughs> tongue twisters or what? And I used to, who wrote this? <laughs> because ever since then, whenever I've written, I say it aloud to myself. Right. Um, uh, partly because I think it's always a good, that's always good discipline, generally for writers. Um, but partly because I'm aware of the fact that I'm going to have to go back and, and read it aloud. <laughs> you know, and spend three and a half days in a cell in... Uh, in, um, in northwest London. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Okay, should we move on to your books? So uh, you're going to start with uh, P.G. Wodehouse, I understand. Yes, yeah. I've I chosen a, a, a sort of compilation uh, of, uh, of Woodhouse, which originally published in 1939, but I think it's probably still available. It's yes, been, it is. In and out of print, but anyway, it's called Week Weekend Woodhouse, and it's just a kind of, uh, it's just a perfect introduction to P.G. Woodhouse, and, and I wanted to include it because it's the first, the, one of the stories in it was one of the first um, things I really remember reading, and uh, I think I would come home from a kind of a, a scout camp, and it probably it's probably about nineteen sixty sixty one or something. And I was waiting in a friend's house to be picked up. 
and uh, and the friends they had a few books we didn't have many at home and that's not to suggest my family were illiterate or anything of the kind but they just didn't keep a lot of books whereas they did and i just picked out this this thing and started reading a, a little story about golf called the clicking of cuthbert <laughs> and i knew nothing about golf and i still know nothing about golf and I knew nothing about the world in which it was set, but I just found it enchanting. And uh, and so they said, well, take it, borrow it. You know, so I took it and borrowed it and read it. And that was the beginning of a kind of lifelong love affair with, with P.G. Woodhouse. And of course, what I didn't realise at the time, and have come to realise over the years, is by accident I, I'd, I'd happened upon not only one of the great kind of comic writers, one of the great escapists and so forth, but also the supreme technician of the English language. Yes. You know, because nobody, nobody knew how to make a sentence work like P.G. Woodhouse. And as soon as you start writing for a living, you start, you know, you start reading with a, with a different kind of intensity, with a with different view. And Woodhouse is a thing that I've gone back to again and again. And it always makes me laugh when I hear... I hear educationalists or whatever talking about how children's literature always has to reflect the lives that children's li children live. Right, yeah. I, I, nothing could be further from the truth <laughs> in my experience. You know, I knew nothing about the world of kind of belted earls and, you know, and prize-winning pigs and, you know, and Blanding's <laughs> Castle sleeping in the sun and all that sort of stuff. And, and of course, I, I subsequently realised, as Evelyn Waugh pointed out in that famous essay about P.G. Woodhouse, that, that his world can never stale because it never existed in the first right. place. Yeah. He invented it. And, uh, and uh, you know, the first things I've read an awful lot during, you know, lockdown and whatever's, you know, gone after it. And um, and I, I read a couple of Woodhouse again, you know, and got just the same joy from it that, that I got, you know, when I was 11, 12 years old. And, and I do think we've a tendency, and this applies to literature and also to music and to everything, to uh, to overestimate those things that appear to be serious and to underestimate those things that appear to be light. And P.G. Woodhouse is light, but it's joyously light, you know. And it's incredible, the skill that goes into it is mind-boggling. Yeah, on Saturday, uh, we got somebody brought in six Woodhouse books for us. Uh, we're a second-hand bookshop, you know. Yeah, and if somebody brought in six lovely copies, and I know they'll go. Yeah, yeah. They'll go very soon. Well, yeah, I think you ought to you ought to drop the odd one by apparently by mistake into the children's section. I think you might find okay. you know, <laughs> there might be a sort of ten to eleven year old like me who just picks it up and thinks, "Oh, that's interesting. It looks like it's about golf and butlers." Right. <laughs> yeah. And and be you know be as hooked on it as I was. Uh, maybe I should do that because we we are differentiating even more than us now, young adults. Teenage children, you know, and it's all everything's in a it, different. It's you know. very targeted, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and it, it, well, I always feel, feel this when I go in record shops nowadays. You know that I'm old enough to remember when you went into record shops and it was just artist A to Z. Yes, that was it. Mm. Whereas now, if I go to Rough Trade East, as I did the other day, signing a load of books, 
and it's just the the, the classifications of kind of mind-boggling German, you know, metal so and so are just absolutely extraordinary, you know. And people people tend to shop in genres, which I don't. Well, I don't think people did right. forty, fifty years ago, you know. Maybe P.G. Waddows could could have written a book about that kind of thing. Couldn't <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he, he would he would have been amazed and, yes. uh, and no doubt gratified that people were still, you know, interested in his in his books. And you know, they're they're a constant source of delight that I just return to again and again. So yeah, that's okay. that's where I would start. Weekend Woodhouse, um, which as as you say, you can still get it. So yes. That's, that's, Absolutely. That's good to know. The next one on your list is a What Bobbaloo Bart and Bat Bam Boom by okay. Nick Cohn. Re- reaches for co- copy to try and remind myself. Yes, this was, uh, I thought I'd better include a music book. And, uh, and this was one of the first music books I remember reading because they weren't a big thing. You know, I'm talking about the time I was 18, 19, you know, at the end of the 60s. And um, and there hadn't been many. You know, there was there was Brian Epstein's A Cellar Full of Noise and things like that, and but but not much beyond that. And um, I'd never heard of Nick Cohen, um, but I was just attracted by the cover of this book. And it was a wop bop a loop bop a lot bam boom rock from the beginning by Nick Cohen, and it was a bracing, opinionated, instant history of, of rock and roll, you know, from, I suppose, in you know Bill Haley, Elvis Presley, through the Beatles and the Stones, right up to the late 60s. And it was, you know, I suppose the, the last entries would be kind of, I don't know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Crees and Clearwater Revival and so forth. <laughs> and... Uh, what I really liked, well, I, it, it, was, it was written in a very energetic fashion. It's, it has a real pace to it. There are whole bits of it that I can still, I can still quote, um, you know, to this day, and I've read it for quite a long time. Um, what I liked about it was that uh, he said, "Of course, it's all over now," <laughs> and this is like nineteen seventy. It's all over. Yeah. It's all done. The best stuff's been done. It's all just repetition, you know. It's off college students, all that kind of stuff, which was, you know, he slightly overdid that argument. But, you know, I I think that plants an idea in my head that kind of bore fruit many years later when I started writing books, which is start with a point of view. You know, what I mean? <laughs> right. people don't have to agree with you. It's neither in or there whether they agree with you. But, you know, have a point of view. And so my first book was 1971, uh, you know, Never a Dull Moment, which was the idea was 1971 was the Annas Mirabilis of the rock album, which people misinterpret as being the greatest record, greatest music year ever. It's not that. It's the Annas Mirabilis of the rock album. But anyway, <laughs> and I, I always believe in that, making categorical statements making kind of objective statements about things that are clearly subjective. Yes. That's, you know, that's what I always say. Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell is the greatest record ever made. It simply is. <laughs> Don't argue. It is. You know what I mean? Well, of course, it's nonsense, but 
but it makes a point, you know. And this, we used to do this. As, uh, you mentioned smash hits, you know. We used to do, this is this is the way we used to used to talk at smash hits. Me and Mark Allen and Ian Birch, Neil Tennant, or whatever. And people used to just come in the office all the time and go, do you know what the greatest record ever made is? <laughs> and then they'd say so, so. And somebody, somebody would go, I think you'll find that wrong. Check your working out. I think you'll find it so, so. And it was, just, it was just a code way of talking about pop music. Well, I think a lot of that derives from Nick Cohen's A Wop Bop, A Loop Bop, A Lot Bam Boom. And I'd heartily recommend it to anybody and I think a lot of the ideas that we still have about what great uh, the kind of value system in rock and roll, you know, the importance of the importance of flash, the importance of of rawness, all those kind of things, the importance of maintaining a state of being perpetually seventeen years old, is was rooted in that book. Yeah, you know, and it's still there, and it's still holds good today and it's it's a thumping good read i think that's all i would say i think if because i read it a long time ago and i think pj proby is is is, is he loves PJ elevate, proby. elevated above anything the beatles ever did yeah. well i don't know about that but <laughs> yeah, he, he does he loved pj proby he always felt pj proby was uh should have made it absolutely huge you know and I, I think there are a few people similarly affected by P.J. Proby. But I suppose you could say that the feeling that your personal favourite never got their just desserts is a key part of the loving of pop music, you know, right, whoever yeah. your personal favourite is. Yes. You always think, if only everybody had seen the world the way I saw it or heard it the way I saw it, it'd be a better place. Um, but yes, P.J. Proby was his big thing, undoubtedly. Yeah, well, I think I... Think I uh, because I started um, listening to music properly when, as just as punk rock kind of happened, and that book was perfect for, right, for, yeah, yeah. for that time, which sort of said, you know, everything, they're just taking everything too seriously. Yeah, we yeah, just yeah, want to yeah. make a load of noise and jump up and down and yeah, have fun, yeah, yeah. you know. And he always had those, he always wrote the details that nobody else wrote. He wrote about, <laughs> well, his chapter about the Rolling Stones, I think he goes in a cinema in 1964 just after a stones concert and he said there was a strange smell <laughs> and i realized what it was they'd wet themselves yeah wow. <laughs> and nobody writes that kind of thing you know because that's the kind of thing it's worth uh, you know it's worth many paragraphs of analysis that is well i think i remember simon and i coming back from somewhere one night we were chatting i remember saying everybody has to like everything nowadays you can't because it used to be you used to be able to say i hate folk music i hate all folk music but now it's like what you, well, you can't just what about and what about you know, i know, you know what you mean you know? i know what you mean although i i have to say i you know having worked in record shops everybody always thinks they've got catholic tastes mm. uh, just right across the board everybody always thinks i like that. everything yeah <laughs> i like everything me apart from country and western or opera or whatever, you know. Well, I genuinely, I can, I kind of write, I do like everything, really. Um, but that's as a real result of working in record shops. Right. Uh, where you just learn more and more and more. And uh, and what you realise working in record shops is you, th you go in there thinking you know a lot about music and you immediately realise you don't because 
<laughs> you know, and the same thing applies about books, I'm sure. I, yeah, I learned exactly that here. I thought I read everything, and then people come no. in and they know so much. The, yeah, absolutely. The customer always knows more than you, don't they? You know? And I, you see, it's happening with music, particularly nowadays, <laughs> that I meet 19-year-olds who know more about Neil Young than I know. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, don't, they don't... Well, obviously, they didn't have the experience of, of Neil Young happening to them in the way it happened to me. But thanks to the internet and thanks to people's just increasing devotion to gaining more and more knowledge, you know, that's the way that's the way it works, you know, particularly with music. Hello, I'm Anne, one of the volunteers at George Street Community Bookshop. And here's some good news. If you can't make it down to the shop or you're not local, you can now buy books from us online. Just visit our website georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk Have a browse and see if you can find your next read. With thousands of affordable, good quality books for sale on there, and we're updating stock all the time, so you never know what you might find. A bit like coming to the bookshop itself. So wherever you are in the world, buy your next book from an independent, second-hand bookshop, owned and run by the community. That's us, georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk the next book is The Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth. What a book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. I just uh, I just picked it up again just to, to um, refresh my memory a bit. And I thought, my God, I should read this again. Yes, do it. I have read it for a while. <laughs> and, of course, he wrote it in just a few months, didn't he? He checked into an – he was a journalist. And he checked into a hotel, I think, in Paris. And thought I'm going to write the bestseller, and he damn well did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think I read it. I must have read it before the film came out. And, you know, for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know, <laughs> the weird thing about the day of the jackal is it's about a plot to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. And of course, what we all know is nobody assassinated Charles de Gaulle. So you would have thought that's a complete non-starter as an idea for a book. But he makes it work. And, um, you know, thanks to the Day of the Jackal, whole generations of people, you know, who, who kind of started reading thrillers in the late 60s and the early 70s, 71, I think, was when it was published, and, uh, and then went to see the really good film, with Edward Fox in the lead role, thanks to him, everybody ended up knowing. Well, if you want to, if you want to fake a, an identity, you have to go to Somerset House and find somebody, somebody who died young, and then you, <laughs> you know what I mean. And and uh, and the, how the, the police will eventually rumble you in France because they go round all the hotels, and you have to lodge your passport in a. You know, every time you go to a French <laughs> hotel. They take your passport. You was like you always make a joke about oh, day of the jackal. They were out, <laughs> <laughs> they were out checking on me, and uh, I suppose it's the first procedural book I remember, right? Because I think mystery is massively overrated in in fiction. Myself, I don't give a hoot about who did the murder. You know, you know. I, I read Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and all those things. I can't remember who did it afterwards. I don't care who did it. I care about the journey. Yes, you know. Yeah, and uh, and the day of Jackal is a, is a fantastic example of the journey because you know it's not successful in the end. It can't be. 
Um, and, but he just he takes you every step of the way, and uh, and you know um, increases the tension absolutely all the way through. I think it's I think it's remarkable, and I, I only wish I could find thrillers nowadays that satisfy me as much as that. Right. I mean, I'm sure there are th there are those, but I'm just not. I'm kind of not in the market, you know, but the, there was just something about the Day of the Jackal that's just very spare and it's, it's always moving forward. It's, you know, it's, it's, very, never... it's very plausible, isn't it? Everything in it is plausible. It's, it's, you know. I suppose it is. Yeah, there's nothing ridiculous, yeah. is there? No, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just think it's a remarkable piece of work. And um, you know, I recommend it to anybody today. I'm sure, I'm sure there's 14, 15 year olds who wouldn't have a clue who De Gaulle even was, who would get a lot of enjoyment from it still today. It's a great title as well. The Day of the Jackal is just a fantastic it title, you know. But he's good at them because he's got the Fourth Protocol and the Odessa file. And yeah, this I, kind of thing. I, read, I read a few of those later. Yeah, I suppose the Odessa file. Yeah, and uh, but the Day of the Jackal is still. It's the one that you keep going back to, you know. And, I, of course, they, they unnecessarily remake it, the, the movies, don't oh, they? Oh, have they? Yeah, yeah have they, they remade it with Ooh. Bruce Willis something, didn't they? I can't remember. They just made a film called The Jackal. I thought, oh, oh that's right. Uh, oh, yes. We do not need no. that, you <laughs> no. know what I mean? Because Edward Fox, utter perfection, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm. Um, everything, God, he's good. Yeah. yeah, watching Edward Fox in the film, well, no man ever wore a cravat with more, <laughs> you know, with more uh, more dash than Edward Fox did, and smoked cigarettes absolutely all the way all the way through the film. It's a terrific piece of work. Oh, maybe terrific. it's not that plausible then. A cravat's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> but uh, you know, the the writer himself is. Um, is steeped in that world, really, isn't he? He was another. There were so many writers like uh, like Harry, of course, and some sent more than Fleming. They were all MI six agents, you know. Or, you know, was you know, was Forsyth one? Yeah, of those? he was. Yeah, oh, was yeah. he? Oh, yeah. I didn't realise. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, that 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 certainly helps. You see, I'm a, I'm a sucker for John Le Carre. I love John. Oh, Le I do. Yes. And half of what I love about John Le Carre is just the um, is the kind of the insider language. Mm. It's the the pavement artist and the, you know, poison. What is he doing? Poisoning wells, muddying pools. All the, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always take all these terms and, and try and apply them to my, to my personal professional life. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. So the next uh, book is, is one I haven't read and it's The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Yeah, Edith Wharton, um, I've only discovered relatively recently. Both mm. my wife and I have discovered her. And I I um I read a lot I read quite a bit of sort of nineteenth century fiction. And I'm a sucker for the classics of, of you know, nineteenth century novels. This is a bit later. Edith Wharton was um I don't know where how you kind of position her, but um she's American. And uh, very successful novelist of the uh, turn of the century and and beyond, probably lived most of her life in Europe, and wrote these um, these novels about um, about wealthy people or people who wanted to be wealthy people. 
in the so-called gilded age right. of, of American, uh, you know, increase the industrial explosion of the of the late nineteenth century and the creation of this this plutocratic class, and um, the custom of the country. It concerns the story of, of, a, of a young woman who has my favourite name in fiction. She's called Undine Sprague. Wonderful. Undine Sprague, once heard, never forgotten. Because unlikely, though it might seem, with somebody with a name like that, she's supposed to be fabulously beautiful. And she's 19, 20 or whatever. And she's come to New York... Uh, on the dime of her father who's made a lot of money out there in the heartland. And all she wants to do is to be accepted in New York society. And um, what I love about books of this kind <laughs> is I think those the fiction in that era wrote about things that nowadays nobody writes about. It wrote about money. Right. Okay. <laughs> it wrote about status, you know. Uh, it wrote about marriage. And um, I think those things matter to people just as much now as they did then, but nobody talks about them because right. it's very kind of, you can't, you can't do that, you know. And so people of that era have a kind of hard-nosed realism that I really respond to because I, I don't think you'll find it in contemporary fiction. Right. And... Edith Wharton, really interesting person because she was born in great wealth but not blessed with good looks. And in those days, two things mattered, great wealth and good looks. Right. And if you had one, you could turn it into the other kind of thing, you know. And, and so nobody was better positioned than Edith Wharton to write about Undine Sprague, <laughs> who had fabulous beauty but wasn't quite wealthy right, enough okay. and desperately wanted to get herself to marry the right guy and, you know, and so forth. And um, my wife and I have both the absolute suckers for Edith Wharton over the last few years, Custom of the Country, The Age of Innocence, which was right, yes. Scorsese made a film uh, made, made a film of. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. And um, I just wanted to represent that because I tell you what I'm also interested in, the... Um, there's a publisher, oh, God, I've forgotten the name, um, who, who do a lot of reissues of, uh, of fiction from the 20s and 30s, largely written by women. Because what you find at any given time is there's tons of popular fiction, very often written by women, which is really popular and then falls out of, you know, favour. And But it's always worth bringing it back yeah. because you can always rediscover what it was that was that appealed to people in the twenties and thirties, you know, people like Winifred Holtby, you know, wrote yes. South Riding, yeah, and uh, and people like I tell you, I discovered recently Dorothy Whipple. Have you ever read Dorothy Whipple? No. Oh, <laughs> what a name! Could not recommend it more highly. Right. Okay. <laughs> You've probably got some in I'm, there. I will check it out. Yeah. <laughs> w h i double p l e. She's fantastic. Right. And so. Similar thing, you know, writes about kind of domestic things that really still matter to people, but you will not find them in the shortlist for the book prize. You know, we still sell Edith Wharton books. Um, they come in secondhand and they go out. Well, that's good. That's good to know. That's yeah. really good to know. But I've yeah. not thought of it like that about the relationships because if you go into most bookshops or even Tesco or something, they're all 
who's your neighbor and who's going to kill you and somebody's going to disappear the baby is gone you know it's, it's all that at the moment isn't it oh is it right yeah, yeah, yeah. it's jeopardy of that yes. kind yeah. yeah 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 you know yes yeah, so, well, this wasn't like that at all no I, uh, this is this is frankly about social climbing yeah and you know i think the the impulse to social to socially climb is as strong now as yes. it's ever been yeah. we might deny it all we like it's really <laughs> strong you know it drives a lot of reality television right exactly yeah, now the, i think the, the guy who wrote uh downton abbey said that this book inspired him yes. to, to write he, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah julian fellows that's right yes yeah julian fellows while we're talking about it, julian fellows wrote a really good little book called snobs see okay. if you got that okay that's really worth reading Julian, Julian Fellows kind of one foot in the aristocracy, so he's, he's very good on how the, how the other half live, yeah. Um, so, okay, your final book, uh, and I love the title of this book, uh, it's called, Anna, but I don't know it at all, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah, this is a thing I just discovered a, a couple of years ago, and I can't even remember how I discovered it. Probably on the internet, somebody just pointed me sideways to something. Basically, simple idea, and it's about the, the so-called Great Migration of African Americans from the southern states to the north, to the industrial north and elsewhere um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Because obviously over a long period of time, millions yeah. of African-Americans moved from, you know, Mississippi and Tennessee and so forth up there. And it's a huge subject, but the way she does it is brilliant because she just tells the story of three people. Uh, one woman, two men, um, two people from quite poor backgrounds, one from relatively, you know, middle class background, and just the the extraordinary stories of of, of their their journey from the south, from a from a world of. You know, with the memory of slavery was still strong, and it was clearly still the it was still Jim Crow, and you know, you were very constrained in the any life you could lead. Up to you know the northern cities, up to Chicago and Detroit and New York, and going out to the West Coast and so forth. And um, it it just has that has that what it reminds you of is to invoke a, a, an author from the north. Alan Bennett says all families have a secret, and the secret is they're not like other families. Right, and uh, and that's really true. Mm. And and in this book, you see this because all families have shapes that don't bear any resemblance to other families. They're all strange in their own different ways, and it's it's a really moving and you know, but realistic account of of what clearly happened to millions of people. Um, and I found it one of the most profoundly impressive views of the Amer African-American experience that I've ever read. And uh, and particularly if you're somebody like me who's kind of listened to a lot of music that isn't rooted in that world and, you know, 
And I always, I always say that American music is all about emotional geography, you know, because it's all about moving. American, American music is all about movement. British music is not about movement at all because right. we don't move. No. <laughs> all Americans move all the time. Yeah. You know, they uproot. They put everything in a U-Haul truck and they go thousands of miles and start a new life over there. The British don't do it. Uh, and obviously this was a, a particular case of this on a massive scale. I would recommend this book to absolutely anybody. It's terrifically well done. Uh, it's immensely readable. And uh, it's one of the most illuminating works of contemporary history I've ever read. It would appear that the African-American experience is something that is an ever-expanding story, isn't it? I mean, it's it's as in the news now as it ever was, you know. Um, it's, it's... But yes, this um, this would uh, I would I just recommend anybody to read it as uh, as background for what's happening now, as for background for what happened 40, 50 years ago, because it's a it's a it's an absolutely massive story, and it's still going on in one way or another. Right. Okay, so that's The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And uh, and that concludes the five books for today. <laughs> well, thank you. Just a, a couple of things to discuss. I was just thinking about your reading habits, David, and, and, and if, you, um, if you're if you someone just like reads a book once and then puts it to one side, or if you return to, to certain books, and, and if you do return to certain books, what is it about them that keeps you going back? I've only started returning recently really and um in not, not in any great methodical way um but i tell you what i'm a great believer that there's uh, a lot of time was wasted a lot of energy was wasted trying to interest the 17 year old me, me in books which the 70 year old me quite happily reads yes. because at 17 Jane Austen's Emma is completely wasted on you. I'm sorry, it just is. Whereas when you get older, the, the older you get, the more you get from the book. So I've recently revisited, I revisit Evelyn War quite regularly. Right. And I just, I just start with one. I just start with Scoop or, right. or you know, <laughs> Decline and Fall. And before I know where I am, I'm on the, I'm on the kind of Men at Arms trilogy and all, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I, uh, I, 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 think, um, I think I miss Evelyn War. Not that I remember him, but just I think we need a presence like that now. You right. know, I feel as if I would like. I would like his, uh, you know, his gimlet eye on some of the things going on nowadays. Uh, yeah, so I, I reread Dickens and stuff like that. Um, but I should probably, as a result of this, reread The Day of the Jackal, which is likely less exalted, but <laughs> but you know, no less worthy of respect. Yeah, definitely. I've read the, I've read The Day of the Jackal a number of number of times and de gaulle still lives oh uh, well i'm not telling you <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting thank you so much david uh, of course david's uh, new book overpaid oversexed and over there how a few skinny brits with bad teeth rocked america and hopefully hopefully you'll end up in gloss up another time we'll... yes yes i will i'm sure i will all right when this bloody war is over as we say Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter, 
Facebook and Instagram. Just search for George Street Community Bookshop and follow us for the latest updates. Don't forget, you can now buy books from us online wherever you are in the world. Just visit our website, georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk and have a browse. And of course, you can always come and visit us at the shop on George Street in Glossop. Check out the previous episodes of the podcast and we hope you can join us next time in the bookshop. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere.